You're listening to the Beyond the States podcast with Jen Vimont. Did you know that you can go to Europe and get your entire degree taught in English for less than one year of tuition at many American schools? Jen will take you on a deep dive into the many benefits and options around English-taught higher education in Europe, helping to make the possibility less foreign. So when I started Beyond the States, I devoured every book and every study I could get my hands on about issues in higher education. In fact, that's actually how I learned about our guest today is he authored two of my favorites. He wrote, uh, There is Life After College, and he also wrote Who Gets In and Why. So it was through reading uh, his books and, and also other books that we'll have in our show notes that I learned more about the problems with the U.S. higher education system. Now, I want to start by telling you that I'm not here to slam the U.S. system. I think there are some incredible choices out there all around the world, including the U.S. And as you know, my daughter's actually chosen to go this route as well. But I can't tell you how often I see comments on social media about how the U.S. higher education system is the best in the world. Now, I've talked before about how problematic I think this tendency to assign everything in a better than or worse than category is. And it's actually something I tend to see more here in the U.S. than, than other places in the world. So I think it's important that we look at some of the facts around this. I've talked a lot about issues with ranking, so I'm not going to spend too much time on, on that situation uh, in this episode. But I will say that if you're interested, Malcolm Gladwell has an excellent series on his podcast where they uncover the algorithm used by U.S. News and they look at the problems with it. Also, Frank Bruni's book, Where You Go Is Not Who You'll Be, has an excellent chapter on the issues with the rankings. What I'd like to touch on today, though, are the findings about the educational experience for students once they get on campus. So there was a study done that's cited in just about every book I've read on the topic. It's called Academically Adrift, Limited Learning on Campus. And so this study looked at 2,300 students at 24 universities, and they looked at critical thinking, complex reasoning, and writing gains over their time in college. 45% of them did not show any significant improvements in the first three years, and a third of them showed no improvement in critical thinking skills after four years. Additionally, more than a third of the students in the study studied less than five hours per week, and half of them said there was not a single class where they ever wrote more than 20 pages. It's just really incredible to me. So th there's this also this related study that I learned about in the book called Fail You. And the study is called Leisure College USA, The Decline in Student Study Time. So, and they found that students now study less than half as much as universities claim to require. And that this decline was across the board, every major and at every type of four-year college, no matter what the selectivity was. Then there was also this study from 2015. I talk about this one a lot. It was a study done by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. They found that U.S. college graduates with a four-year bachelor's degree scored below their counterparts in 19 of the 21 participating countries. So there was only Poland and Spain lower than Americans with bachelor's degrees. What's even more disturbing is that students from the top three countries, Finland, Japan, and the Netherlands, their high school graduates scored the same as our college graduates. So why is this happening? I think there, well, there are a ton of reasons, but, but let's look at a few potential ones. First of all, rankings don't take into account learning on campus. 
there's a measure that, that assesses this called the NESI that universities all around the countries use, but most schools won't make this information public. So U.S. News couldn't use this as part of their rankings, even if they wanted to. There's also this study that the Journal of Higher Education did. I read about it in something called the Faculty Lounges. And they found that the more time a college professor spends teaching, the less he or she gets paid. And this is in both big research universities and in small liberal arts colleges. They're, they're incentivized to do research and publications as opposed to teaching. So there's this um, great description of it in this book called Losing Our Minds. And they say, intoxicated by magazine and college guide rankings, most colleges and universities have lost track of learning and the only educational outcome that matters. Other priorities, higher rankings, growing enrollment, winning teams, bigger and better facilities, more revenue from sideline businesses, more research grants, have replaced learning as a primary touchstone for decision-making. I mean, I just think that that, I mean, that's so spot on. And then the other issue, I believe, is that the education model is really not being updated in this country like it is in other countries. Denmark, for instance, started allowing students to have internet access um, during their national exams because in life you have you have um, internet access. The content knowledge isn't what they wanted to assess and the content knowledge is still really being emphasized in the U.S. The issue is, is that that knowledge, it either becomes obsolete or it could easily be found. So it's more about how to think and what to do with the knowledge that matters. And, and this is actually the problem that our graduates are having. They aren't developing the critical thinking and the soft skills that employers are looking for. In fact, there was a 2018 survey of more than 650 employers, and they found that three quarters of these employers say that they have a hard time finding graduates with the soft skills their company needs. There was also an interesting Gallup survey done, and it showed that only 9% of the business leaders considered where an applicant went to school as very important. But a third of Americans had a belief that the school attended was very important in the hiring decisions, so or a real big disconnect there. And then lastly, there was this really cool study I read about in Frank Bruni's book, Where You Go Is Not Who You'll Be. And so what this study did is it looked at the earnings, the difference in earnings between graduates of selective and less selective universities. And so their initial finding was, yes, there is a 7% difference in earnings between those graduates from selective and less selective universities, even if the students had the same SAT and GPAs. However, now this is a cool part, they dug deeper. And for the group of students at less selective schools, they segmented the ones who had applied to more exclusive or selective programs, but not attended. Uh, and that, when they did that, the earning difference disappeared. So it's not about whether these students even got into the more selective school, much less attended it, is that they applied there. This suggests that it's more about the traits of a student who applies to more selective schools, be it confidence or, or something else. Now, this was examining students who went to school in 1989, and the admissions process was much different then. So I don't know that the outcome would be the same now. You know, students now are encouraged to apply to schools that they would never get into, by the schools, in fact, uh, in order to gain the selectivity factors. And of course, the Common App makes applying to multiple schools super easy. 
while they may have to figure out different ways to segment the group or or different variables to control, I do think that that outcome would also hold true today. So why are we so resistant to accepting this information? For one, I think it's because it's such a different experience than parents my age and older had in college. The system started changing quite a bit after we graduated, and and we tend to base our judgments on the experience we had rather than the current reality. But our experience is outdated. I think the other reason is that so many people don't see real alternatives. And so since you feel like you have to participate in this incredibly expensive system, it's natural to want to turn a blind eye to the problems. But it's kind of a great thing. I mean, the fact is, is that a key problem is that people are assigning importance to the school name when success is really about the traits that the student has and what they make of their educational experience, no matter where it is. So if we spend more time cultivating these important traits in our kids, they're going to find success. They might not get into the most selective universities in the U.S., but they'll find it wherever they land, be it in the U.S., in Europe, or elsewhere in the world. So let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back with our guest. My name is Tamara. I am from Florida, and I'm in my first year at the Burgundy School of Business in France, and I found my university from the Beyond the States database and membership. I've always been interested in studying abroad or foreign exchange programs, but I always felt like I never had that opportunity as it was always perceived to be unaffordable. No one I knew or any of my educational advisors understood this process and lacked knowledge on how to make this a possibility. Through my Beyond the States membership, I learned everything I could about how to study abroad and was actually provided resources and connections to make this process achievable. I found Beyond the States through a TikTok video and was convinced to invest in the monthly membership plan, and that decision alone changed my life. Through the Q&As, monthly university and country updates, and the Facebook group chat, I've not only been able to get this opportunity to study abroad, but also make some amazing friends who are studying in Europe as well. If you're even slightly interested in studying abroad, I suggest you check out Beyond the States to get started. The free blogs and interest quiz will be enough to make you desire this opportunity, and the database access will leave you with no regrets. Check the show notes for details in the link or go to the services page on beyondthestates.com. So today I'm talking to Jeff Salingo, who's been writing about higher education for more than two decades. He's a New York Times bestselling author of College Unbound, The Future of Higher Education and What It Means for Students. Uh, Also, there is Life After College, What Parents and Students Should Know About Navigating School to Prepare for the Jobs of Tomorrow. And his latest book was a big favorite of mine, Who Gets In and Why? A Year Inside College Admissions. He's a strategic advisor on the future of learning and work, a college admissions and early career expert, contributor to The Atlantic and other publications, and co-hosts a Future You podcast, which features thought leaders in discussion on what's next in higher education. Wow, you're busy. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> it is. I have to tell you, I was rereading your books. I read them, your two latest ones when they came out, and I was rereading them uh, in preparation for this. And when I first read them, I didn't think I would have any kids. My kids are, my son's in college. My daughter's a senior in high school. And I didn't think either of them would be following the college in um, U.S. route. So I kind of read them smugly, like, oh, we're dodging this bullet. And as I read them this time, my daughter has recently announced that she would like to consider going to schools in the U.S. as well. She decided this her senior year when she had not been playing the U.S. admission game. So I was reading um, Who Gets In and Why kind of, feeling a mix of nausea and anxiety, knowing that this is now what, what we're going through. 
And I was, I was just shocked by the stories, like, like the girl with the 1310 SAT and eight APs who was rejected in three minutes due to her, her mid-year C in AP environmental science, or the student who worked 20 hours a week, had a 3.7 GPA, 1400 SAT, seven APs, and a recent diagnosis of diabetes and was rejected to the four Bs he had his sophomore and junior year. So I can't imagine sitting there and watching all this. And I have to hear what it was like listening to these discussions and watching these decisions being made. So it was re- it was really fascinating. I mean, it's really just kind of uh, it was a, a fly on the wall of, of something that you would like to be in the room where it happened. Uh, and I was I was able to be there. Um, and what was interesting to me was I was a little concerned that because I was in the room, you know, whether it was in committee or uh, at a, a place like Emory, where they had a set of two readers reading an application at the same time that my presence would actually be disruptive, right? That it would change the conversation. And, and maybe in the first couple of minutes it did, I was in you know, something different that I was in the room, but after a while they had work to do um, and they kind of settled into their normal way of doing business. And, and thus they kind of almost forgot I was there uh, watching all this, uh, reading along with them. Uh, and so I was really lucky because it's interesting right now, I'm, I'm actually going back into the process just to see how things change during COVID. And they're doing a lot of this by Zoom now. And it's just not as good uh, as being in that room where, you know, uh, this level of emotion was on display where, you know, they're constantly eating, uh, you know, their snacks and everything else. It's just different on Zoom. Yeah, I I would imagine so. Uh, And also your presence, I guess, on Zoom is also more, I mean, you're on that screen. So it's, it's more noticeable. What would you say was the most disturbing or surprising aspect of the admissions process you found when you were in those rooms? Uh, the most disturbing process, uh, part of it was that, uh, and I guess disturbing might be too strong of a word, but <laughs> the students put so much time, effort, and energy into this. And that a lot of what it comes down to, by the way, is stuff that happened to them before they ever started even putting their application together before they even started the college search. As I mentioned many times in the book, the the number one piece of information or the two pieces of information that have a lot to do with whether you get in and why are your high school grades and your high school transcripts. Did you take those tough classes? Did you get good grades in them? Well, a lot of that is set in stone many, many years earlier. What you take in middle school depends on what you take in high school. Obviously, what you take freshman and sophomore year depends on what you do junior year. And you can't erase the grades of freshman year and sophomore year once you decide to apply for college or junior year. So that was probably the most disturbing is that I think that students think they have all this control over the process, but there's so much that happens before they even start thinking about college that impacts it. The most surprising thing to me was just the breadth and depth of these applicant pools that we're talking 25,000 high schools in the US. Uh, you know, A place like Emory got applications from 8,000 different high schools. So while students might think they're great at their high school, right? That they're ranked pretty high up in their high school. The fact of the matter is then they're competing against these pools of students from high schools all across the country and increasingly around the world. And I don't say that to raise the anxiety level of students, but I say it to know kind of almost as a reality check so that they know to look beyond that list of 10 or 12 colleges. For me, I think the most disturbing part was the uh, how much demonstrated interest 
weighed in the in the process or in the decision. You know, you can almost understand the rationale be, behind the transcripts and all of that playing such a big factor. But but demonstrated interest, I, I just don't even understand how that would kind of factor into whether the student would be successful at that university or not. It blew my mind. Yeah, and, and it has nothing to do with, as I point out, early on in the book, college admissions is not about you, the student. It is about the institution and its priorities. And one of the priorities is, for some institutions, that students they accept actually show up. Right. They want their yield rate, uh, which is the percentage of students who come who've been accepted, they want that to be as high as possible. And, and the way they determine whether that will be high is to get some student, they to accept students who they know will likely come if accepted. So a theme in both of your books, that I really, that really spoke to me is you, you talk about how success in college is about how you go, not just where you go. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think that we put so much effort into treating admissions as a game, hoops to jump through. And, and one of the hoops is just getting in, but then we spend very little time thinking about what we're going to do with this opportunity, four years of college. And I think that many students go to college kind of as spectators to their education and don't really think about how they're going to take advantage of the opportunities once there. How are they going to meet people? How are they going to get to know professors, find mentors? What are their, what's their major going to be and why? And what kind of classes are they going to take? How are they going to engage in this great experience that they just spent a lot of time, money, and effort to get into? It is fascinating to me how much time, effort, and energy we spend getting in, but don't really spend a lot of time, particularly in those moments so think about all those students right now who applied early decision and already know that they got in, or you might know, you know, usually, you know, by March or April uh, and, and usually by May 1st where you're going. And then you have what, four or five months before you actually show up on campus. Great time to start to think about, well, what do I want to do now with this opportunity? What do I want to, what do I want to take advantage of? And those are the opportunities. Again, the, the professors you get to know, the internships you have, the clubs you participate in, the classes you take, those are all the things that ultimately lead to success after college more than just the name on the, on the degree. You know, and it's interesting. It seems like even if students started thinking about this before junior year, for instance, it might help them narrow down their search and decide what it is they're looking for instead of just, I want to go to an Ivy or I want to go to my, my daughter has a friend who applied to 17 schools. And I thought, 17 schools like what is it about each of these schools that that fits what you're looking for and um i don't know that she could answer that <laughs> you know because it's so much about names so given so much uh, your your books do a great job of, of citing research about how it's not you know this this name recognition is not what people think it is um and there's study after study after study about this given the evidence to the contrary. Why do you think people are so resistant to changing this belief that, you know, the big name, whether it's an Ivy League or whether it's that, um, you know, their state flagship school, but that their child's success is dependent on going to a particular school? I, I think that we, we tend to think of elitism in the U.S. as uh, conflated with selectivity. And, and really, when we think of these, whether you want to call them elite um, I don't love to use that word because they're elite by choice, uh, prestigious, uh, whether they're top ranked. And I, I tend to think we put too much emphasis on the rankings. They're prominent, no doubt about that. Whatever term you want to use, a lot of that is because they are selective, because they have decided 
as an institutional priority to make what they offer a scarce commodity. And they've decided we're only going to have 1,800 seats in the freshman class, even though we're getting 50,000 applications for it. And, and any admissions officer will tell you, we could fill that class five or six times over without any declining quality. So this has nothing to do with quality. There's definitely enough talent out there around the world to fill these classes. They just don't want to do it. I, I really liked how you said that, that, that they've chosen to make it a scarce commodity. You know, in, in Europe, the, the admissions process is quite different in that most schools don't have an enrollment cap. And so that doesn't mean they have these huge lectures. It means that, that they don't, because you're applying to a specific major, a specific program at a school, they have more spots than they have applicants. And too many times American students think, oh, well, there's not that selectivity. And so it must be subpar when these are, you know, again, I'm with you on rankings and even more so on global rankings. I don't think they're important at all, but this is a case at highly globally ranked universities. It, it just doesn't have to be a scarce commodity, but many of these U.S. schools make it such. And then they do, and that's how they become prestigious. And then it just feeds on itself. Uh, they get the research dollars, they get the donor money, they invest that in these endowments in, in, financial products that most people can invest in. They make even more money. Last year, for example, in the middle of a pandemic, these most prestigious institutions, because they're able to invest in hedge funds and other private equity funds that most colleges don't have access to, their returns were 65, 70%. They're already you know, tens of billions of dollars here and they're making all this money. Oh, it just makes my skin crawl. So I think this, this is leads to a discussion of educational quality. So if we're not going to use the rankings and we're not going to use selectivity rates, you know, I think so many times people look at those two things about educational quality. What beyond those things should students look for when they're trying to define educational quality or assess it? So I think really what they're looking for is going back to what I said earlier about the experience, particularly mm -hmm. the student experience. In terms of quality, you want to look at the outcomes. So do students graduate? Are they retained? You want to look at the retention rate and the, and the graduation rate. Are you going to be able, do most students stay and do they end up graduating? You want to look at the graduate outcomes. We now know this from the college scorecard. You can look at the salaries of students by major at your school. Salary is not the only outcome that you should look at, but it's definitely an important one, especially if you're going into debt to pay for school. But then there are these intangibles. And when I say intangibles, I mean things like Faculty members, do they care about you? Will they be a mentor to you? Do they, do they teach or is it mostly graduate students who are teaching you? Are your classes going to be small enough where you get to know students? Is the place welcoming for, for somebody from your background? Those are the intangibles that I think, because most of the educational experience, as we all know, happens not only in the classroom, but it mostly happens outside the classroom. Right. So it is a place where the student experience is going to be engaging enough that you're going to learn. Absolutely. And I think it's also that they're engaging to one student might not be engaging to another. You know, there's not just this one definition. I think students need to understand that quality for them, a great fit for them doesn't mean it's a great fit for everybody. And that there's not just, you know, one right road that students should take. Right. And, and I think that's important to know, right, that I, I'm a big fan of the how I built this podcast, you know, where, where they talk to entrepreneurs of big company, you know, that now are big companies and how they got started. And, and there's a theme that goes through almost every single episode in that there everybody has false starts. Everybody takes detours. 
um, everybody has failures. So that's a that's something you talked a lot about in There's Life After College uh, and learning from mistakes and the importance of doing that. And you talk a lot about how U.S. education isn't preparing students for employment and that that's a reasonable expectation. You know, given the amount of tuition families are paying, it's reasonable to expect that that students would graduate with the skills they need for employment. So what skills do you see that have you learned that graduates are missing? Uh, it's mostly what we often refer to as the soft skills, although I hate that word. And it's things like uh, being the ability to communicate, the ability to work in teams, the ability to problem solve. Uh, these are all you know, critical thinking. These are all things that most employers want and are not necessarily getting in today's uh, college graduates. And it's largely because I think many students and parents are so focused on the hard skills, being able to program or being able to know how to do X, Y, or Z in this particular field, that they kind of forget that these other things are just as important. I, I, I always tell this story many years ago before the pandemic, I was having breakfast in Washington and next to me at the table was somebody who was being interviewed uh, for a job. And, and at the end, they just started chatting about their backgrounds and education and so forth. And I'll never forget the interviewer. They were talking about college majors. And the interviewer said, who is a business major as an undergrad, which is the most popular college major, said, if I had to do it all over again, I would be an English major because writing is the most important skill in any job today. Wow. Critically important. Wow. Interesting. And I have to tell you, you know, my son um, is studying in Europe and that has been what I've seen. He's really behind from his peers. You know, he went to a, a good public high school in the U.S. here in, in Chapel Hill and he had, you know, mostly A's, but he was just not prepared for the writing aspect and the writing demands of college in Europe. It's been it's been a struggle. Yeah. And I think that it's much more demanding than it is here in the, in the U.S., right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And less handholding. And, yes. and that's one reason why students, you know, the studies show um, that the students who travel or who study outside of their home country, they are getting those soft skills because they're learning to navigate unfamiliar circumstances in their day to day life. Um, they're working in groups of people who have different backgrounds and different perspectives. And so they're gaining those skills in it. And it really does help with employability, which is nice. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that's increasingly important because a lot of these soft skills you don't learn in the classroom. Right. You don't learn through a curriculum. You learn kind of in the day-to-day -day living in college. And that is the part of the problem, I think, in, in American higher education today is that there is a lot of handholding. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that handholding, they're not learning these critical skills. Right, right. And sort of uh, the, the life in a, in a bubble aspect of it, too. You know, when you're on campus for four years, you're, you're not finding many unfamiliar circumstances and, and situations to navigate your way through. No, you're not. And, and many students don't work uh, outside right. of, uh, you know, outside of college in, in the workforce these days, unlike generations ago, which is a place where you would learn to get along with people of different ages. You would learn to show up on time. You would learn these critical communication and problem solving skills. They don't, they don't do that anymore. That was a great place to learn those soft skills. And again, we're not really exercising those muscles in college either. Right, right. So you, you talk about these other roads to take, you know, be it travel or a gap year or Minerva, which is really interesting, and other, other experiences that students can pursue after high school as opposed to going straight to college. 
Uh, what impact can these experiences have on students, whether it's academic life or, or soft skills or, or the like? Well, I think I think for for a lot of students, they need to take a break. I, I think that we're we're seeing this during the pandemic, that there's no special sauce that says a student has to graduate from high school, go right into college three months later, graduate four years later, and go into the workforce. That's really a relic of a different era, by the way, when very a lot fewer students even went to college. You know, speaking of you know post World War II. Uh, generation. And remember, the post-World War II generation was coming back from a war where they had really matured in a way that today's students are not. And so I'm a big fan of slowing it down mm -hmm. a little bit. Uh, coming out of high school, uh, big fan of the taking a year off. Uh, and I, I shouldn't say year off because you're actually going to be doing something during that, during that time. Uh, and really kind of learning about yourself, catching up on maybe academic work that you got behind on and in high school, trying to get a sense of what you really want out of college, particularly since college is so expensive. You can also take that time during college and after college, or take it all three. I, I understand given the expense of raising children, parents really want their children to get on with their life as quickly <laughs> as possible. But in the long run, you actually might be better off slowing it down because you won't be supporting them when they're 40 then. Uh, and, and, and instead, you might be supporting them through 25, 26. You know, that time could be used to, to develop passions as well. I, I recently spoke with uh, William Dershowitz for the podcast, who wrote Excellent Sheep, and talked about how the admissions process, he, his, what he's seen is it really prevents students from learning what they're passionate about. And how do you make a plan if you don't know your passions? How do you follow your passion if you don't have it? So if they could take that year and find their passion, it also might prevent extra years in college where students are switching majors as they're, you know, trying on different passions then as opposed to before college. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I think that, that uh, first of all, this word passion worries me because I think yeah. it, 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 it leads to the idea that students have a passion or need to find a passion. You know, I'm 25 years after college, and, and I have some passions, but I'm not quite sure I found my passion yet. Mm. I don't think most people have. And so I, I think we put a lot of pressure on students to find something that they really want to do at the age of 18. And I think most students don't know it. Interesting. I like that. So maybe we just call it instead of passion, you know, strong interests. And, and that it doesn't have to be what they want to do with their career, but to have strong interests that they can then follow in some way, shape or form. Um, can lead them to what they may want to do in their in their life. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's incredibly important that they get more exposure to jobs, to careers, mm -hmm. to people. This is why I'm a big fan of trying to figure out how do we connect people and young adults at the age of 18, 20, 22 with people who have just been through a variety of careers and a variety of life situations. Uh, I have a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old at home. And I mentioned earlier that I I'm a big fan of the How I Built This podcast, mm -hmm. and we just listen to it in the car on the way to school. And I usually pick those uh, the episodes where they uh, have a product that they get, right? So we're, we've been listening to the one about Stacy's chips right now because they eat Stacy's chips, right? But what, one thing I want them to learn is that you know life is not a straight line, that there's going to be these failures. Learn from people that they now could identify with in some small way. And that's really what... I would hope that we would get more high school. Again, we're just not getting high school students, young adults in college are just not getting exposure to jobs and to people like this. So how can we? That's a really great point. And I think about it, the jobs that are available to them 
are not jobs that many of their parents are, are active in. I mean, the job force is much different now than when I graduated from um, college and there are careers I've never heard of. You know, I wouldn't even be able to begin to educate my kids on how, how can we expose them to these careers outside of what they know from their family and family friends. I, I think that we need to really um, help them understand what the different jobs are. I think, again, mm-hmm. exposure. Could you, even if they don't have exposure in their own, own home, own college, could we try to get them to shadow jobs mm-hmm. uh, that may be you know, somewhere else? I, I think we put a lot of emphasis on internships. I'm less interested in internships, particularly for college freshmen or even high school students, but could they just get into the workforce and shadow somebody? I think that's one way. Um, I think things like, as I was saying about the How I Built This podcast, other things where people are talking about their jobs. I think this is a really good public service that many employers could provide where you just interview your employees about a day in the life. What is it like to be a sales manager? You know, what is it like to be a, uh, an analyst or whatever jobs? And particularly, by the way, not just that we hear a lot of stories about how CEOs made it to where they are. I'm less interested in the C-suite and I'm more interested in the vast majority of jobs that most of these students are going to take one day. That's really interesting. And you're right. It's definitely sort of a gap in, in what we're teaching our teenagers these days. That's uh, going to give me some food for thought <laughs> to, uh, to think about that. So other than exposure to, uh, to different jobs, what advice would you give parents of teenagers as it pertains to helping them decide what they're going to do right after college, whether uh, right after high school, whether that's what college they're going to apply to, whether it's these other opportunities they're going to seek? What would you tell parents? Well, I think first, the first thing I would tell them is, is have patience um, and don't pressure your students into, for example, if they don't want to go to college, Immediately, don't pressure them into that. The research shows, for example, which I find very interesting, that students who take a gap year graduate at the same rate as students who don't. So it's not like you're actually putting them behind by having them take a a gap year uh, or allowing them to take a gap year. And in fact, we also know that they they go to college much more mature. We know this from the the research. The other thing is to, to give them a lot of exposure as much as you can uh, to, to jobs and to colleges as much as possible. Again, the more the parents say, well, I, you know, you need to look at these types of colleges because they're in the top 50 of the rankings or whatever, the more pressure you're putting on those, those students. It's interesting. I had to kind of practice what I, what I preach recently with my daughter, because I often tell parents the opposite. You know, if, if your kid comes to you and says they're interested in college in Europe, let's explore it here. I can, I can help you. I can tell you, you know, research on, I can tell you statistics on it. That doesn't mean they're committing to it, but keep your field open, you know, don't close off doors before you've explored them. And that's what I had to do myself with my daughter when she tells me, you know, just driving along, you know, that uh, (laughs) even though she's gotten into the school in Ireland already, you know, she, she'd really like to look at, at schools in the U S and it's, and it's been hard to follow her lead, but I think it's important when kids are, are showing some sort of initiative and interest to, to let them follow that road, you know, certainly with limits, our limits were around tuition, you know, but yeah, to explore, cause it's their path. Ultimately it's their path and they will be the ones um, following it. So it's hard though, as a parent, I have to say. Yes, I, I agree. I, I think that parents have their vision of what college is 
And, uh, and I think that they feel that, especially if they went to college and they went to a particular college, I think a lot of parents put pressure on their kids to do something very similar. So I have to tell you something you said at the beginning of this has me really interested. You said you're doing some follow-up um, work on looking at admissions and how it's changed with COVID. Are you working on a book, on an article? What what can I look I'm working to? on. Uh, so I'm working on the paperback edition of the book, which will probably uh-huh. come out like late in uh, or sometime in 2022, maybe 2023. And so I really want to see how the admissions process that I saw a couple of years ago has changed. Excellent. So is it a new edition or are you just, are you just putting no, it's in just a new edition? Yeah. It's not going to be, there's not going to be a big change to, to what we're doing. Okay. Sounds like it could still be worth getting another copy of if you're going to be talking about yes. changes to, uh, to the playing field this year. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you you talking to us today. Like I said, I've been really excited for this interview. I'm a huge fan of your work and uh, have you on kind of the alerts in my Amazon. So I see what you're doing. <laughs> I look forward to uh, other projects you may take on in the future. Uh, well, I appreciate your time uh, today and it was great to be on here. Great. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to tell you about the March special of the month because it's something we've never offered before. The Quick Start Package puts all the resources you need right at your fingertips, and it offers a savings of $300. The first thing it comes with is our membership. So this includes access to our searchable database, uh, monthly recordings that answer questions that you submit, our incredible Facebook member group, and a host of other members-only webinars and resources. Then we're adding in all five of our self-paced courses. There's a course on choosing a major, one with step-by-step processes to find the best school for you, one about schools in the Netherlands, one about business programs all across Europe, and another about the admissions process. We're also providing you with a digital copy of the book I wrote in 2018, which highlights 13 different universities in Europe. The next two inclusions are what I'm most excited to tell you about. We've compiled a new resource that's only offered here. It's called the European College Review. This reference pulls all of the important information you need in one place. This includes important blogs, quick tips, a collection of the blogs, all the blogs I've written on school visits, as well as all of the past deep dives I've provided through programs of the month. So those are a lot of DIY resources, but this is not just a DIY package because it also comes with a 30-minute consultation with me. Purchase separately, this package would cost $529, but today we are offering it for $229 for this month, actually. Uh, Due to my own availability, though, we have to limit this to the first 10 subscribers. So you can find the information um, about this offer in our show notes, or you can go to beyondthestates.com slash monthly special. 